Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the weekly podcast that explores the nooks and crannies of living in a body. Sometimes it's the two of us having a casual conversation through the filter of that day's topic, and other times we have special guests who add their voices to the chat. We are yoga educators and body workers with decades of experience as practitioners and teachers. It is with reverence and joy that we choose to take these conversations off the mat and into the microphone. Our aim is to understand the human experience through the stories our bodies hold and the stories they tell. Since having a body is the one thing we all have in common, it seems like a good place to start. We are your hosts. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. And I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Join us on this journey of discovery as we sleuth our way to the connections of our individual tales to the collective experience of being alive. Can I just say as we start today that since we're going to be talking about feminine energy and one part of it is the elder, and we talked before about embracing our hair colors, uh -huh. but your hair looks amazing today. Thank you. I oh just actually gosh. got out of the shower. I don't typically <sighs> shower in the morning, and I only usually wash my hair maybe once a week. So today was that day. Oh, my God. I, you know, <laughs> as a younger woman, I really, really wanted hair like yours. I wanted all of those beautiful curls. <laughs> I have long, straight, fine hair. And I just wanted it to be curly and wavy. So thank you for starting my day with that memory. Anytime, sister. And it is about sister energy, sisterhood and divine feminine. Like what is the divine feminine? You're, you hear about it, you know, moonstones, they represent the divine feminine. There are black moonstones and white moonstones and there's dark feminine energy and there's light feminine energy. And none of that implies a good or bad value judgment just a way to kind of depict these different types of energies. And what one of the things I read, which I thought it seemed common sense to me, and it seemed didn't feel as magical as I expected definitions of the divine feminine to be. It sounded like a reaction, you know, a reaction to the male structures, that the divine feminine was a feminine structure offered in reaction or in opposition to, in balance of, I don't even remember the words because I'm just riffing, but that it was to sort of say there's another way to look at things. There's another lens through which we can see our energies in our world, and it's not limited to our genders. Yeah, I mean, I, we keep going back to that, and I really feel that it's such an important part that energy is not male or female, it's masculine and feminine. And I found this quote about, since I started with how much I loved our gray hairs. <laughs> and it's in an article called Autumn and the Wise Woman. And I really love that we're embracing this season of autumn is upon us. And one of the energies of autumn is the wise woman. And this article, which of course will be linked in our show notes, it's a blog. And she begins with, there can be wisdom in every wrinkle, power in every gray hair. And I was just like, ah, oh, you know, with all of this research, and gosh, there is so many different ways that we could have this conversation. Mm -hmm. But I we'll feel see what like happens. <laughs> we'll see which direction we actually take. <laughs> I just feel all embodied um, with my feminine energy today. And as we talked about in past episodes, I tend towards a male energy in a lot of what I have done. 
a masculine energy, but today whew, I am floating in sisterhood. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that we can embody our masculine energy and still connect fully to our sisterhood. And I think in some ways it may be the male energy that allows that that connection to to thrive in balance with our feminine energies. Um, you know, I I have two sisters. You have what nine hundred sisters? You have thirty four sisters. How many sisters do you have? You I have know, five sisters. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to take that over into the soft leadership skills. Um, that's really, I think, the part of embracing the feminine part of the energy as a balancing energy to our masculine energy so that um, we can give the same amount of respect to soft leadership skills as we do to demonstrative leadership skills. Absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about divine feminine, which feels to me a little bit different than the conversations we've been having about feminine energy. The word divine itself, it, it evokes feelings of, you know, sacred, I don't know, mystery, that there's something bigger and maybe more all-encompassing about this energy than simply, you know, the reduction of masculine and feminine. As I was going down this rabbit hole, and boy, is it a freaking rabbit hole. You know, we, a lot of our our people, our listeners, our our I want to say our students, our audience, because we're teachers, we're educators in the yogic and body fields. And so I default to the things that have been calling me for the last couple of decades. And that moves into goddess energy, you know, moving into the Hindu and Buddhist sort of realms of, of how we understand these energies. You know, when we look at mythologies and we look at, you know, certain spiritual texts, some people can decide that they're literal, that this is the way it was, and I'm not going to step on on that subjective truth, but, and there's all of this beautiful poetry, all of this beautiful metaphor to be able to access and harness so that we can better understand what it is, what is this divine feminine? And so I just started going into my little Google thing, you know, mm -hmm. divine feminine and goddesses. You know, how do we tap our Shakti energy, this, this energy that transcends gender, transcends form, race, you know, all of the things. It's energy, but it does kind of bring in, it It gathers the divine feminine. And I'm just going to quickly list the goddesses. We can get into more of, you know, their meanings as they they arise. But Dorga is the warrior goddess. She's kind of the protective mother. And we've got Kali, who's the goddess of death, time, and doomsday. She's our fierce mother. You know, her, her name literally means time. She's the goddess of the ticking clock of life and death. You know, in the tarot cards, they use archetypes mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, get the same kinds of messages. And death in the tarot is just its rebirth, its transformation. It's not necessarily a literal death, though it, I guess it can be. Lakshmi, the goddess of prosperity and abundance. She's centered around good fortune and wealth, and we're going to get into that too. Parvati is the goddess of fertility. You know, I don't think it gets more divine or feminine than that. And Sarasvati, the goddess of knowledge, music, art, wisdom, and literature. So we have, you know, a, a nice breakdown of four characters that we can we can examine, we can explore, we can you know, maybe touch the hem of certain. I love that that idea of touching the hem of something. You know, just the beginning of, um, and something that can can un unhinge. Like a hem is sewed to 
to kind of create a length, but we can also shorten it. We can lengthen it. We can move that hem, but touching the hem of this divine feminine energy. Wow, that brought me into so many different places. So I'm going to tell a tiny little story and then come back to the point. Touching the hem. I went to Catholic school and they <laughs> had to wear uniforms and the uniforms had to be a certain length. So talking about like this female energy of, you know, what we needed to look like in these uniforms, but our hems and our length had to be a certain thing. It had to touch the ground. It had to be to the knee. So we would roll up our skirts when the, when the nuns were in her ass. <laughs> but then you could easily roll it down so that it was at the appropriate length, but you kind of have to kneel down so that your hem would touch the ground to know if it was the appropriate length. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, I don't know much about the Catholic religion or, you know, the the reason why that would have been necessary. But it seems to me that if divine feminine is a reaction to the male structures, then that seems to come from a, through the male gaze, you know, that and in many religious institutions, and I'm not going to start naming it and getting specific, but if it resonates, you'll understand, there seems to be a fear of the divine feminine. You know, if we look too pretty, although we, they want us pretty, you know, <laughs> if, if we are too smart or if we're too, you know, too much, then there's a fear that comes from that. What is so scary about a strong, beautiful, intelligent woman or that feminine energy, which can be experienced and expressed through a male human being, <laughs> you know, but still, but when we come to the actual women, when we're looking at gender and we're looking at, you know, the, the length of the hem of your uniform, something that you have to wear every day, which, you know, there's, there's pros and cons, I think, to uniforms and there's pros to con and cons to everything. But just as a curiosity, what is it? Like, why, you know, why that length? Mm -hmm. Why? Yeah. Why did, why was that figured appropriate? and some other length wasn't. But, you know, going back to being in school, I studied mythology. We studied goddesses or saints or whatever, you know, different lessons that you had, whether it was Greek mythology or the different saints that could also be looked at as archetypes. And I wish that when I was in school, they had talked about these archetypical qualities rather than being so connected to the personhood of the archetype, right? That these archetypes and the goddesses that you mentioned, the different saints that I learned when I was in school, they're a representation of attributes that exist within all of us and that we can connect with them when we want to connect to that energy, when we want to enhance it in self, or be able to embody it to assist and help somebody else. So the representation of, of attributes, I think I would have understood mythology and all of the different things I needed to have that I studied in a much more deep and personal way had I just heard that one bit of information. And I'm not saying my teachers didn't share it. I'm just saying I didn't hear it. <laughs> Well, and and that's a really great point. You know, it's we're already here. We've touched on archetypes. We're going to touch on patterns. Everything that we've already talked about can be repurposed for different conversations. 
And, you know, I've always kind of thought Catholicism and Hinduism had some overlap between the saints and the deities. Both of them, of of these different traditions, use a multitude of people, goddesses, deities, you know, historic figures, using loose quotes for whatever that's worth, to, to, to teach, to educate, to represent the one bigger deity, the the one God or the one, you know, sort of thing that is bigger than all of us that has organized this this world. And the rosary and the um, mala beads, you know, they're very similar. But I had read or seen something years ago that showed that Judaism and Catholicism were the most, um, the highest rates of conversion in both ways. So what are the archetypes and patterns that overlay those two different fields of study or religious, you know, connections? It, it's all it's all here for us, you know. There in yoga, when we've said there's no one size fits all, that's why we have so many different ways in. That's why I call myself a Krista Hindu Buddha Jew. You know, all paths to the same place. And I know I'm missing a bunch of of. I can't put them all in there. I, I'd start I'd start getting tongue tied. But that we all hear things in a different way. We see things in a different way. And so for us to be able to package the divine feminine in this conversation as an, another way through which we can envision, imagine the world in which we live is, is just something that we get to do. <laughs> just because. Just because. Because, because we, we want to, right? <laughs> yes, because that's what we do. We have yeah. a conversation that lets us go into so many different ways of looking at uh, different topics. And, you know, it's no secret that Teresa loves being outside and that you know, the energy of autumn is wise old woman. And I find this fascinating that you, we can take our, our lives, our experiences, and look at them as nature and or a garden, right? In our younger years, we have seeds planted. And, you know, they'll all, often call it, you know, youth can be our spring. All the seeds are planted. And we start to learn and develop who we are and how we're going to show up in the world. And, you know, we can look at that through so many lenses too. We can go into chakras and all kinds of things in that developmental part of our life. But then we move through, right? We come from spring into summer where things grow and we, we really come into that and harness that power of our individuality and our sun. And then we come into autumn, the wise woman who gets to share her gifts and we harvest and we learn what to let go of and what to hold on to. And then we come into the winter. So I just love how all of these different topics mm-hmm. begin to blend. In camp this, this summer, many people, you know, if you're a longtime listener, you know that we hosted a camp. One of the attendees said, I am in the spring of my autumn. And I just loved that saying. It just, in one sentence, she kind of encapsulated, you know, that wise woman energy, but also that we're just learning it. I'm in the spring of my wise woman's energy. So, you know, just when you were talking about that, I had this image of a tree. I'm looking out my window right now. I have a huge oak tree out in front. And, um, 
I imagine in autumn, and it, it's approaching quickly, but we haven't had a lot of rain, although lately we've had a little bit more. So, but a lot of the leaves have begun to fall before they were able to transform to their majestic color foliage, you know, driving through the Northeast during the autumn foliage. And that's still to come. But I imagined all of the tree, all of the leaves changing colors and falling off the limbs while the trunk and the limbs remain steady while they remain rooted into the ground, awaiting the natural cycles that, you know, there was trust there. Maybe not a conscious trust like a human being would have, but a natural trust knowing that the cycles, like as you just described them, would be coming in. And as a parent, as a mother with that maternal energy, you know, you can almost see in that tree, you can almost see every stage of the divine feminine archetype within that moment. You know, the the mother energy that needs to remain steady while their children are growing and changing and transforming through different times in their lives, from childhood into teenage years, into their young adulthood, into, you know, when they become mothers and wild women and what are the others, the nurturer, the crone, all of the different, the goddess, the queen. There's so many different archetypes that we've been able to to look at in terms of this divine feminine. But what remains is that tree, that trunk, the roots, the limbs, and all of nature that gets to reveal itself in its cycles through time, through, who is that, um, the goddess of time, we have Kali. Mm -hmm. So Kali is also destruction. You can't have that destruction, that doomsday, without a sense of cyclical rebirth. Like there's, it's constantly in flow. So I'm going to have this, this image of the tree and the tree of life and all of these things just keep popping into my head every time you talk about nature and reflection. And when you're talking about the garden, you know, we talk about karmas as karmic seeds. You know, I had a teacher who said, there's no such thing as karma, it's karmas. And mm -hmm. she referenced some teaching she had had that we create 64, I think 64 karmas in the snap of a finger, but that many of those karmas, because... We have receptors in our bodies, in all the layers of our koshas. Some of them are overt and some of them are covert. You know, we're not always aware of the cause and effect that's happening in every moment. So some of those karmic seeds get purified in the moment they're created, <laughs> uh, apparently. <laughs> you know, I'm saying all this with, you know, a certain levity, but also reverence, you know, which is, I think, part of this divine feminine energy. We can hold the space for all of that, but this is not a, a conversation about karmas or karma, <laughs> karmic but, seeds, but the idea it, of the garden brought that up. Yeah, we blend into them. And you had mentioned the leaves and the tree and going back to the um, this blog on golden poppy herbs, the article began with this quote, and the sun took a step back, the leaves lulled themselves to sleep and autumn was awakened. And I just really loved that because it brought in all of the seasons, but also this honoring of the sacred wisdom of the feminine, that we have this fertility at parts of our life. We, you know, the, the feminine energy is nurturing. There's a sensuality and a beautiness to it. There's a softness but the softness is sometimes looked at as weakness rather than a soft powerfulness or a soft leadership that we can really have this sacred energy, this 
sacred way of supporting, nurturing, nourishing, teaching that's extremely powerful, but delivered in such a soft and kind and accepting way. And it's interesting because it seems like today there is an abundance of voices out there that that are dealing with this. So we've got Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle, and we've got a bunch of people who are have big platforms who are are talking about these things in very real ways. And and from that feminine energy, that softness that you that you describe, but also with a sense of ferocity, like there's a balancing in the way that it's being communicated. There's a balance in the energies of masculine and feminine, but really sort of digging into the heart of what it is to thrive and honor that more feminine um those feminine attributes. I was just looking, you were talking and I haven't read this in a really long time and I'm not, not even sure it's very good, <laughs> but yeah. I had written a poem called Autumn Slays Me <gasps> and I just found it. I was looking for it when you were, and so I'm going to read it without having read it in a long time. So if it sucks, I apologize. <laughs> and if you get something from it, excellent. But it's called Autumn Slays Me. The play of light through the trees reflects a clarity born from an eternity of change from one season to the next. Vibrant colors ride on sunbeams, flash a glimpse of their brief purpose and everlasting heartprint on this earth and to my moment as witness. The satisfying crunch underfoot makes a sound that echoes back to the innocence and curiosity of childhood, revealing the truth that time is not fixed. Which I find interesting since we're talking about Kali, the goddess of time. You know, we talked about the the changing of the seasons. And that's from my book, Wild and Free, <laughs> Poetic Prisms. I, this, I'm going to do a little commercial. I have three books of poetry out there and, you know, cut my teeth on the first one. I think it's okay. But they, they get better as, as, you know, they come out. <laughs> well, I don't think it sucked since that's the way you started. It actually gave me a little bit of goosebumps listening to it. We've talked before. I don't know if we did on on our podcast about how you had turned me on to, to poetry, something that was really far off in my vision, you know, like the archetypes and mythology. I guess those softer ways of really looking at things more metaphorically and being able to embody them and understand them wasn't something that really touched my life until I was in my second, almost third season. Uh, (laughs) But I remember you gifted me that book and I would close most of my yoga classes embodying your energy by just taking one of your poetry books, flipping through the pages, and I never planned it. Whatever page opened as I went through it, that is what I shared with the class. I let the divine energy of you and whoever else, the universe who was leading the flipping of pages <laughs> to let me choose something that I just had trust that mm. somebody that was in the class needed to hear whatever I was reading at that time. And inevitably, somebody always would come up and say something like, oh my gosh, you said exactly what I needed to hear. So sometime there's the stepping out into the trust of embodying our own intuition. And I think that's what comes with the feminine energy is this ability to trust in our intuition, in our knowledge, and in this divine guidance that we don't control, but we can lean into and feel it, nurture it, nourish it, and let it become a good part of who we are and how we show up in the world. 
I love that. And the word that came to me when you were saying all that in terms of divine feminine and sisterhood and all that was support. You know, you're reading that, you're even, you know, doing anything with something that came out of my heart that I put into the world that you support is part of of that energy. You know, I think, and as you were talking, I started thinking back at the the journey that our relationship has taken from the moment. And I told you this the other day when I, I said, I think I manifested you because I saw before you were my teacher, I saw you in class and I looked over and, and you had a kind of bohemian look to you. And I thought, there's my people, like there's my person. I, I need to be friends with that person. And then you became my teacher and there was, you know, a different power dynamic there. I met you as my teacher. So that had a different energy to it. But then as we evolved, we did become, we became colleagues first, and then we became friends. And from there, we became partners. I mean, it just, but the sisterhood, I don't think we could have taken the journey we've taken to this point had we not been connected fully and intimately with our own divine feminine, because neither one of us were threatened by the other. Neither one of us felt we needed to compete with the other. We did have some energetic, you know, sort of obstacles to get through because we grew up different. We have different ways of communicating. But I think part of our divine feminine energy allowed us to navigate through those difficult times with love and with compassion, without compromising our own selves. We were able to meet each other where the other was and learn something. You know, it I, at least I'll talk from, I learned, learned a shit ton about myself. And I feel like even, we haven't even been doing this a full year, but I feel like I have grown leaps and bounds and have become a better person, a better mom, a better, you know, spouse, a better partner, a better everything, friend, because of this relationship that we have nurtured. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. We've nurtured a relationship. We've challenged each other and inspired each other to grow, to you know, be able to sit in conversation, casual conversations, <laughs> and, you know, hear ideas from different perspectives to say, yeah, we're going to talk about that sometime, but let's throw that one out for now because we're not ready for it. But to really come together. And I think the, what I heard when you were talking, because you talked about me being your teacher, and I think the best teachers are amazing students. And we go back and forth as we go through all of our research to bring these podcasts to life, to, to create our programs, and also just to learn as individuals and to grow and, and make conscious choices of how we're going to show up by alternating back and forth between the archetype of both teacher and students. In every meeting we have, I think both of us adopt both of those energies mm -hmm. at different times. Sometimes you are my teacher and sometimes I, and I am your student and at other times it flips. But in the end, as with anybody who is open to the experience of being with their teacher, there's just so much growth and change. And this curiosity, like if, when we talk about the different stages of the feminine energy, you know, when we begin, we are youthful. Our first one is the maiden, right? This, this young energy of curiosity and learning. And in our meetings, we go through all of those different stages. And sometimes we're in the stage of 
birth through puberty, where we're just diving into a new subject that we really haven't looked at. And we have to adopt creativeness and youthfulness, wonder, excitement, and just embrace the newness of life, like planting seeds. And I think that's the really great part about studying the divine feminine energy. And that is, even though chronologically, I'm probably in the crone stage, energetically, I can still embody the maiden and start a new project with a seed. Mm -hmm. So I want to just dial back for a second. And then I just, yeah, I said to my kids the other day, I forget which kid I said it to, but I said, when I look at you, I don't just see you as a baby. You know, sometimes you can look at your kids and see them just as, as little. And I don't see you just where you are now. I see you at every age. Because you are every age to me. You are still that infant who, you know, relies completely on me. But you are also that teenager who's breaking away. You are also that young adult who is forging ahead and writing your own story. There's all of these different things happening at once. But I want to dial back for a moment about the student-teacher relationship. Because if one of us were male, that trajectory may have looked different because of the power dynamic of the male structures that we are now trying to accommodate or at least understand through the the divine feminine lens but the power we look at some great teachers and even in the yoga world male teachers who have brought down institutions you know the shambhala center where i started my my studies my meditation studies the institution is now crumbled because of what, a second or third generation male who, you know, and maybe the males early on were also misbehaving, but now we see more clearly what has been going on with John Friend and Anusara and, you know, Bikram and his his woes, you know, that there's this toxic masculinity that believes the hype, that does not touch. If any of those men had been in touch with their own divine feminine, or even their own divine masculine, which we may or may not touch on this week, but will definitely next time, perhaps those institutions would have been built from a place of integrity rather than, you know, ego, self-serving stuff. You know, that once we begin to believe the hype, which is why I think partnerships are so important, because we keep each other accountable, you know, and it's not about walking around always being so humble, but it's about recognizing when we overstep, when we are moving out of integrity, when we, and there's a way to draw back that is kind. There's a way to draw us back into this space of integrity that allows us to then amplify our message in a way that maybe can be heard by more people. But I loved where you were going and I didn't mean to derail, you know, we started going into all the different ways and stages. But I wanted to touch on that that power dynamic that sometimes occurs in a student teacher that if one of us had been male, it may have been more unlikely that we could have arrived here in the way that we did. Maybe yeah, I, th- I think so, because, you know, it's just our culture, our culture. And we're talking about masculine and feminine, but there's also a culture of male and female mm-hmm. and the dynamic that happens between men and women, the way that we look at leaders. I mean, I've grown up in a time of uh, lots of change in that dynamic of male and female where roles have changed, right? When I was young, there weren't female doctors. There were, but not very many of them. It wasn't easy to find. It was a male profession. And as women in my age group, we 
stepped into or were led and working in male-oriented professions, right? How do you come into these different places of existence, the different things that you want to bring? So there is this power dynamic. And that's, I think, why I started with, you know, to be able to have a soft, powerful way of communication to really start to embrace this ability to be in a leadership role that is nurturing and nourishing. And when we just look at what's going on in the world, there there just is an overabundance of masculine energy. I'm not even going to say male. I'm just going to say masculine energy in both women and men, which I think is coming into balance. You mentioned that there's a lot of voices other than ours that are really talking about this embodiment of the feminine energy in all of its different stages and attributes. And yes, we can look at it through the lens of all of its positives, but with any other energy, there can be the other side. Like think of some of our crones in stories that we read as children. Right, We have all of these archetypes that show the other side, like the Wicked Witch of the West instead of Good Witch of the East. Showing but so, so the Wicked Witch of the West, we got to see her in a different light through Wicked. Yes. Someone yes. got to rewrite her story and give us a reason why we, got, we see her that way. Why do people see powerful women in a negative light you know and i think we would be remiss because of the time that we are we're having this conversation the queen just died the queen of england she's been in that throne for 70 years 70 fucking years you know can you imagine doing anything for 70 years i mean i i taught public classes for 10 years and i kind of felt the need to to shift my energy and move into different directions but still gathering all of you know what came before but so here's the queen of england and you know where did her divine feminine hold her in good stead where did it derail her how did she you know harness her masculine energy in order to you know meet parliament to meet the you know leaders of the world but she didn't quite i mean her power was limited but the you know it, it just it's such an interesting world which is probably why netflix can do 500 documentaries on the queen and you know and on the princess and the whole royal family but you know and someone said the other day when we think about the queen there's a queen of norway there's a queen of jordan but when we think of the queen we think of the queen of england you know and what does that archetype represent and these are just open ended questions cuz i have no answers mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, this is not my scholarship but just curiosity yeah, and we often look at these archetypes in balancing. You talked about it when you read the the goddesses at the beginning of this episode, you know, the differences between Dorga and Kali, right? The the discernment and of Dorga and Kali in the representation of death. Or in Catholicism, we have, you know, the energy of the Virgin Mary balanced with Mary Magdalene, right? Both really strong female archetypes in the story of Christianity and Catholicism and in the life of, you know, Jesus, but they have different energies, but still as important in the story to for us to really understand the dynamicism of the interplay of 
how we can express this feminine energy and allow it to have a fluidity so that as we need different types of energy, we have all of these beautiful archetypes to lean into. Or, you know, depending on, you know, spirituality or religion or whatever anybody's practices might be, if we need to cultivate an energy within ourselves or we really want to connect to it, we have all of these goddess examples of people that we can pray to or have a mantra about or a mudra or a different practice that allows us to bring that energy into ourselves at times that we really feel that we need it. And I guess that means that we have to know what we need. We have to know who we want to connect with at different parts in our life or through different struggles, what type of energy we want to draw into ourselves and allow it to grow so that we can show up in the way that we want to. Absolutely. And you, we know that everything is energy. Can't be created or destroyed. Can only be, you know, redistributed or somehow harnessed, cultivated, whatever we do with energy. So it does matter that we know what we want so we can deliberately and intentionally cultivate the causes and conditions for those energies to to thrive. And one of the things that I think contains a shit ton of energy are words. Shit ton. You know, I mean, <laughs> someone's going to hear me and be like, oh, Sherry, why do you have to curse so much? And I don't think I curse a lot, but I, I do think that words have power. And so when I use, when I say fuck or I say damn it or whatever I'm saying, it's because those words are what hold the energy of what I want to express. And so when you were talking about Mary Magdalene, it brought up the shift in language and it's still happening. But when we, in, in news stories and when we're talking about, you know, the world and we use the word prostitute, you know, often the word prostitute lessens the value of the human who wears that label. So now rather than calling people who do that work prostitutes, the new trend, which I think is really important, is to call them sex workers. We call them mm. sex workers, not prostitutes. And the first time I heard this was actually on a podcast I love called My Favorite Murder. Yes, that's what it's called. And Georgia and Karen, who I fucking love. Yeah, Georgia and Karen. <laughs> but they, they were the ones because they tell a lot of really gruesome stories and a lot of really hard stories to hear. And that was one of the shifts in language that that gave different depth and understanding to the humanity behind the story rather than reduce a person simply to what they do or how they show up in the world in that way because we don't know they're after the because. We don't know their story. And who are we to fucking judge anyone? So, I mean, unless they've really harmed you in some way, then <laughs> judge away. Or if it's fucking clear that someone is harming someone, you have all the permission in the world to call them an asshole. That's it. Yeah. yeah, we just, you know, there's this strive for balance. And I think that's really why I find like my research that I'm doing into the divine feminine to be so rewarding for me personally. Like the masculine energy is filled with action and force. And we see an awful lot of that in our world. We see action. We see forceful action. And I'm not saying that we don't need that. There are many times that we need, we definitely need action to get anything done. Right. Sometimes we really dive into it with a force to 
be creative and to accomplish, but we can also see an overabundance of force that is existing in our world today, where the feminine energy has a more receptiveness and form rather than action and force. This ability to be a little bit more intuitive and decide how to show up. And that can also be out of balance. You know, in individual aspects, both masculine and feminine can be very much in balance or out of balance where we're just way, way, way too receptive and we're taking on the weight of the world and unable to embody our masculine energy and be active because we're just weighed down by it. But for me, I see a whole lot more of every time I turn on the news, video games, movies, shows, where you see force unbalanced with the feminine energy and that we're falling over into an overabundance, or maybe there's always been an overabundance of masculine energy, and that there is a real power in actively, which is male, coming into the study of the divine feminine, the study of leaning into our intuition, the study of being receptive to what's going on in the world around us, and limiting our access to seeing the, the amount of force and war and destruction that is shown to us in every time we turn on our TV or see the news or so many other ways. You know, that it's rare that you turn on the news and you hear a feminine energy story because for whatever reason, that doesn't sell. <laughs> well, I have a very good friend who years ago wanted to set up a good news network. That was just happy, beautiful stories from around the world. Didn't have to, not in a toxic positivity way, but just a way to balance all of the crap that we are in, that we're consuming. And, you know, in the conversations we have, when we see these things, we're taking them in through our senses. And when we take things in through our senses, in some way or another, we are embodying them. So what if we were to eliminate the words masculine and feminine and replace them with yin and yang? And I know sometimes I say yang because that just kind of defaults to my my Philly girlness. But I, I do, I think more yang feels more in, in energetic alignment. So we just replace them, the attributes and the qualities and all of that, if we were to list them, would probably fall into those categories very similarly as if we had done just masculine and feminine. And so for for males to to really kind of understand and embody those pieces of their divine feminine, let's just keep using that term and go in, go for it, go and all that maybe the language, because language does have energy. Maybe if in order, I always tell my kids, there's a way to get what you want and there's a way to absolutely not get what you want. The way to get what you want doesn't necessarily mean you'll get what you want, but you're closer to getting what you want if you <laughs> Do these behaviors. And I think sometimes we sabotage our own efforts because of our default, because of our patterns that we've established, because of, you know, our archetypes, all of the things that we talk about, that there's a certain sabotage that goes on. So that even if we know that we need to harness a little more softness to balance our ferocity, our sharpness, our edge, whatever that is, in order to get what we want, you know, that we still we hang on tight because of whatever we think we know, or it's all that ego piece that it just, and it feels, it just, it has a feeling to it that makes my face pucker. 
Mm. I love the the idea of the news station with good news right? because it made me think if masculine energy is outward and active and feminine energy is receptive and inward and we're constantly exposed to this active and often when we're watching the news violent depictions of how humans are and um, I think humans have a nice balance of both personally. But what we see when we go out to look for the news, we see more active. We see more of the, in many cases, not our best qualities shown. We see a lot of war and aggression. We hear about, you know, the bad things that are happening, not balanced by the more positive things that people are doing. But my question really is, and I don't have an answer for this either. If what we're watching is active, outward information, and whether we're a man or a woman, we're taking it in through feminine energy with receptivity and inward focus, is it enhancing it or damping it down? Is it hard for us to embrace that feminine energy because it's inundated with this overabundance of active and sometimes really violent ways that we see every single day if we're a news watcher or even um, if you're just on social media and yes. you are getting specific reels and things that are coming up and things to watch i know my reels are america's got talent <laughs> and and american idol like those auditions i get a lot of politics in my feed and and i get a lot of true crime stuff because those are the things that i tend to look for so with all of this personalization also we are conflating a lot of these energies. And I was talking to someone the other day who we were talking about how in our culture, we accept violence more than we'll accept sex in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, what we'll allow our kids to watch or what we allow, what we watch ourselves. And he was saying how in our culture, sex and violence are conflated, that it's really hard to find a love scene, a sex scene that is not violent. Now, I watch a lot of TV and I will say there's a lot of sexy sex stuff out there <laughs> that does not necessarily make, you know, bring up the violent piece. But I think it's an important thing to look at so that when we are consuming, that we're able to discern and teach our sons that women, the feminine, the women over there are not necessarily interested in that kind of, you know, violent sexual behavior. Some may be, and that is not for me to judge or decide, but consent. Like my kids, they're really big on consent. And I love that this age gets it. And, and it's not just about sex, but, you know, consent to use their image now. When they were little, I used to post pictures of them all the time. When they asked me not to, now I'll say, may I post this? So mm -hmm. I ask for their consent to put their image on my, my feed. And so I think that that's the energy. That's the feminine energy of, you know, balancing out. I want to do this. I get to do this. I'm going to do this with, may I do this? <laughs> this thing. And if no is the answer then whatever work I have to do to accept that is my work to do. Yeah, I, I really like that idea of consent. And that happened in my life as well. You know, if you look at my Facebook feed, there's very rarely anyone but me. There's a lot of pictures of nature and things that I love outside. But in order for me to post a family photo or do some of those things, maybe some of the recycled ones that have been out in the world a lot. You know, right. I'm not going to call everybody. I'm a big family. Well, if I'm going to put something on social media, 
And I think that's a really important part because people go to parties and then you see everybody who is there without consent. So I adopted that consent philosophy years ago when my grandchildren be were younger and their parents, I would say, is it okay? And now that they're older, I can ask them directly. And I think that that is really something that thankfully this next generation is adopting because social media started as social media. It has a tendency to get out of control. People forget that we're out there in public sharing this information. And consent is really an important part. Whether it really has to do with feminine energy, maybe it does. This interoceptive inner idea of considering others before action, right? That inward thought before we act might be exactly what we're talking about. You know, action is a really important part of life. But to really be discerning, that's a word that I've heard you use many yeah. times, and I've really learned to love that word. To have enough discernment to think before acting, to yeah. pass it through our energy body and see how it feels to make a choice or make a decision. Yeah. And then to also know, is this a decision or a choice that I'm making that impacts me alone? Mm -hmm. Which very rare, I've come to find out in life, there's very few things <laughs> that I do say or act that only impact myself. Right. That there are other ripples that come out that impact the people in my life, either very specifically or maybe, you know, a little bit far down the ripple, they're touching others. So there's a lot of thought and intuition and experience that's gained by being able to embrace this season of life called crone or the season of life which is the autumn and we're coming into that autumn energy and what other perfect time for us to really embrace that energy of wisdom and intuition looking back on our life gathering knowledge at any age because everybody has the ability even a, a young somebody much younger than me to adopt and to really lean into their intuition and their internal guidance to make these choices. And it sounds like when you're talking about your daughter saying, you know, ask for that permission is even as maidens and in the younger experiences of their feminine energy, they also have that wisdom and intuition to know that there are important parts that might, that can be overlooked and to advocate, to advocate, to put the action, the male energy behind it and advocate and say, permission is important. Yes. And like I said, they're every age, you know, even the ages that they haven't met yet, you know, they are, they are crones even in their maidenhood. You know, they have the, the dots. We're always talking about connecting the dots. You know, the yin and the yang, the white circle with the black dot, the black circle with the white dot. We all have dominant energies, but we also have dots of the other energies there. And it was funny when the whole thing about discernment, by the time I was sort of at the end of teaching public classes, and I'm not saying I didn't teach my final class, I will teach again. And we have been teaching and teaching in different ways, but just that sort of public class format. 
by the end, in the beginning, in the maidenhood of my teaching, so even within the, the trajectory of my teaching, there were cycles that in the beginning, it was just asana, asana, asana. Let's get into the poses. Let's do the alignment. Let's deal with the physical stuff. And yeah, there's all this other energy things that come into it, but let's start here and let's just like work from, you know, the source of the body. And then through my practice and my teaching, I kind of became more sort of drawn to the philosophical, drawn to the mythological, drawn to all of the eight limbs that create this whole system. And by the end, by the end of that cycle, I went from maidenhood to crone and within my croneness, I realized I'm not teaching yoga. I'm not teaching asana. I am not born of this tradition. I get to be a facilitator of it. But what I'm really teaching is discernment. I get to teach something that the user end then says, does this work for me? Is the way that she's instructing the alignment of that pose, does it align with the energies of my body? So rather than say, this is how you do it and this is how it should look and feel and this is where you, blah, 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 I just say, this is the way I'm teaching it. Feel it in your body. What does it tell you? Where do you need to shift? Where do you need to make accommodations to allow this pose to speak to you? So it's interesting, even just in the way I thought about what I was teaching. Yes, I'm teaching yoga. Yes, I'm teaching asana. Yes, I'm teaching all of those things. And the bigger teaching is discernment. I think it was in my yoga therapy training where um, somebody said, we either come to yoga and we access the mind through the body or the body through the mind. Right? We have all of these different practices in the eight limbs that allow us to explore both the energetic and philosophical parts of our practices, to meditate and to really come into that inward experience, to step into our feelings, to experience, to embody. And we have a movement practice that lets us have an action. And I don't want to suggest that only asana is the action. There can be an action in breath work. There can be a balance in all of them in concentration. But some of our practices really are designed to come into that Nian experience, the female experience, the sitting in the, the darkness, the stillness, the quiet, to embody our ability to come into self and feel and operate from this place of feeling. And you so beautifully just talked about that in the way that you talked about the asana and how you taught it. You went from saying, I started with the alignment and it was this and this, and then it came into this beautiful blending of something that is an action, but softened with the, how does it feel in your body? What is your expression? And this blending of the masculine and feminine expression of asana. I was just, whew, I had so much fun listening to the way that you talked about how that grew from, right, your maidenhood of being a teacher, anything any of us have ever done. It starts with us being a student and then going out and being a maiden. We have to learn how to do what we do. And then we gain this experience and knowledge and intuition and wisdom whether it's in life or a specific job or any other thing that we do, we go through winter, spring, summer, and fall. <laughs> All you got to do is call. <laughs> I don't know. Do we owe, do we owe royal, royalties to someone? Now, we didn't sing it, so does that make a difference? <laughs> I don't know. 
happy birthday to you. <laughs> yeah, that became public domain not too long ago. So I, I did mention in the beginning that I would talk a little bit about the goddesses that we touched on. And I think I'm going to read to you. This is called The Five Hindu Goddesses, and it's from a website, a blog called Yoga Matters, yogamatters.com backslash five dash Hindu dash goddesses. It will be in the show notes because I think that, you know, when we talk about the archetypes, we tend to talk in the language of, you know, we goddess or this or that. Let's get, to, let's get specific and we'll do maybe the, the other ones as well. So Dorga, the warrior goddess. This powerful warrior mother goddess is concerned with combating evil forces and demons and anything that threatens peace, prosperity, and the dharma, life purpose of good people. Dorga, meaning invincible or impassable. Now, those are kind of heavy, you know, the impassable. That almost feels male. She's a fiercely protective mother, with her name originating from the root door, meaning difficult, and gam, meaning to pass or go through. Gam is also a seed sound. We use that in, in some Ganesh mantras. Think of her as the mother who fights to protect her family and doesn't take no for an answer. That, that mother bear, like, oh, Dorga. Kali, the goddess of death, time, and doomsday. I love that, doomsday. When do you hear that except for like in apocalyptic cinema? Ugh. Kali means time, and she's the goddess of the ticking clock of life and death. I'm reading this because I think this author is so poetic in the way that she describes, but she doesn't get too esoteric at the same time balance of male and female. Seen as the most terrifying and fierce goddess, Kali wears a necklace of severed heads and a skirt of severed arms. Her mouth is bright red with not lipstick but blood and carries a sword and a human head. <laughs> I, it's like a tarot card. It's like I love, I love these images. Although she sounds like a nightmare, Kali is the one who can sever the head of the ego or that which limits our potential. Now, there's the metaphor. I think that is beautiful. We see a severed head. We go, oh, my God, a severed head. But what if that's just cutting off the, the, the head of the snake, the beast of the ego, limiting our potential? Coming back to her, she says, when we're in need of a big life change or the ability to destroy something old to make room for something new, she can help us through the difficult period. It may not be easy or pretty, but Kali can bestow a fierce and forceful nature that helps us overcome blocks on the path. A little bit like Ganesh on the other side, on the male side. I'm just extrapolating. I did not read that anywhere. I'm just riffing. All right, back to her. In essence, she's the mother that is sometimes cruel to be kind in the right measure. She's sometimes cruel to be kind. And even though we may not like it at the time, her lessons help us become wiser, better people. So there's a bit of the crone in there. You know, we've got the mother archetype. We've got the crone archetype. So then we come to Lakshmi. Lakshmi is the goddess of prosperity and abundance. Lakshmi, I love this, is like the auntie who gives out sweets and pocket money for good behavior. Ooh, like the marbles you talked about in one of our previous things. She's giving the incentives. She's the goddess of prosperity and abundance and is often revered at the opening of a new business in the hope that she'll send blessings and good fortune. Not only is Lakshmi centered around good fortune and wealth in a material sense, she's the one who bestows us with prosper prosperous health and fortunate life. So there's male and female there. There's the male external material wealth, but then the internal feminine prosperous health and fortunate life. 
Lakshmi sits on, and I, that was not her. I'm coming back to her. You can probably tell when it's my voice and the other voice. I'll mm-hmm. try to do maybe a more announcer's voice for when I'm quoting. But Lakshmi sits on and holds a lotus flower, symbolizing personal growth, spiritual liberation, fortune, and self-knowledge. So there's also a bit of Cronin there. There's a bit of that wisdom piece that we get, but there are many archetypes within these. I've got two more. I'm, I'm going to try to... Parvati. She's the goddess of fertility. Oh my God, mother. Like, what are we going to birth here? Use fertile ground for creativity. So goddess of fertility, love, beauty, and marriage. Parvati is all about creative femininity. Along with Lakshmi and Sarasvati, she forms the Tridevi or trinity of Hindu goddesses. Parvati is very much like an earth mother, gentle and nurturing. And images often show her hand in show her hand in the abhya or fear not mudra, which is going to be one of the practices that I offer. And I saw abhya, and I thought that reminded me of abhyanga, which is a I'm going to talk to Teresa here self massage from um, Ayurveda. Mm-hmm. So I tried to find some connection there, and I couldn't quite find it. It was either the abhya mudra or abhyanga practice. So I'm going to keep going. In times when we feel the need to be more nurturing and grounding, she's the one whose qualities we can look to embody. So in some of the ways that some of the practices of embodying divine feminine, what kept popping up was take a walk, walk in Uh nature. The final goddess that I'm going to talk about today is Sarasvati, the goddess of knowledge, music, art, wisdom, and literature. And I have a little King Charles cab that we adopted during the pandemic, and her name is Sweetie, more Sweetie Darling from, you know, Absolutely Fabulous, for those of you who are in the know, Ab Fab. But now I've renamed her Sarasviti, <laughs> for Sarasvati, <laughs> but she's both. So goddess of knowledge, music, art, wisdom, and literature. We can look to Sarasvati's qualities when studying or getting creative. Sarasvati is usually revered during springtime. We're going through these cycles. And on her day of celebration, parents often help their children to write the alphabet. I thought this was so interesting. Her her name combines she who possesses speech and also professor of knowledge. Although she's also linked to the great river Sarasvati in India, because of this, her wisdom and creativity is thought to run through the waters of India. Ancient texts like the Rig Veda honored her from the beginning of written history, which is of best mothers, best rivers, best goddesses, Sarasvati. That's in the Rig Veda 2.41.16. That was written by, well, I got to give her credit because I read all of her words. And as a writer, got to give her credit. Her name is Emma Newlin, N-E-W-L-Y-N. And that will also be in the show notes. So, divine feminine, sisterhood, love and peace. Love and peace. Uh, You know, I never really thought about or considered the goddesses, um, really wasn't, didn't have much of an education on them until almost at the beginning of this podcast, where I took 30 things about the goddess with Susanna Harwood Rubin. It just opened up my eyes. It it changed everything in in the way that I connected with the goddesses, and I am by no means anywhere close to an expert on any of this. But the way that I connected with them started to really consider what this this energy of the goddess 
was. She was really instrumental. She was a guest in season one. I don't remember the episode. She was our final guest of the season. She was, I guess, episode 10. Okay. And she just opened my eyes into being able to come into practices, study of the goddesses. And so you talked, and I will probably not get this story 100% correct, but for that, I do apologize. But in we, my memory... We have, we, we, we have gold repair for that. Yes, we do. We can just mark up those cracks, <laughs> which is exactly what this story is about. Go figure. It's about a score. <laughs> so it's a story that she shared about Dorga. And I don't have it all, so please forgive me for what I do remember. But once upon a time... Wait a minute. I have it. Do you think we have time to read one more thing? I, I think we, we make things. up the rules. We could have a two-hour podcast if we wanted to. Okay. So no, <laughs> I'm sorry, Judith. I'm sorry, Judith, our editor. We could have a six-hour podcast if we wanted to. <laughs> We're not going there. Sorry. This is Susanna, and I bet you I'm going to like really mess up some of the names because they're really hard to pronounce. So for that, I also apologize. But this is not mine. This is Susanna Harwood Rubin. The powerful buffalo demon Mahisha performed austerities and made offerings to the gods for many years. Finally, as a reward for his devotion, Brahma, the great creator, gave him the boon that Mahisha could never be killed by any man or god. From this point on, Mahisha seemed invincible. Over time, Mahisha became drunk with his own power and began to abuse it, threatening citizens, killing great sages, terrorizing all of the lands, and even conquering some of the gods who were helpless against his power. Mahisha and his army even conquered the great god Indra, and then the gods truly panicked. They went to Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, begging them to intervene. But even these three most powerful gods knew that Mahisha was immune to them as gods. The only possible solution was that they must, that Mahisha must be slain by a great goddess. So Shiva called his beloved wife. When Parvati arrived, she explained that in order to conquer Mahisha, she would need all of their energy and resources to win the battle. Parvati stood before the gods who drew around her in a circle. Shiva and Vishnu knit their brows and their third eyes emanated blindingly bright beams of light. All of the lesser gods emanated light from their entire bodies through the diva. Parvati absorbed the light and in the form of the gods' energies and powers, all represented by their weapons. From Vishnu, she received a discus. From Kala, lord of time, a sword. Yama, the lord of death, offered her staff. And Vayu, the wind, gave her a bow and arrows. Her father, Himavan, gave her a lion to ride. And the beloved Shiva gave her his trident. When the gods finished Parvati, had transformed into Dorga, the Mahadeva, the Great One, the goddess of goddesses. She was glowing, devastating in her beauty, garlanded the lotus and adorned with silks, holding the weapons of the many arms she went into battle. 
As she moved forward, she devastated the armies of Mahisha. She cut through all of their ailments, praised the gods and the seers. She remained serene, even while unleashing her weapons. Blood flowed from like rivers as Dorgas slayed the Asaurus until there was no one left to fight but Mahisha. Mahisha stomped on the ground with his fury, creating earthquakes and floods in his wake of anger. He lunged at Dorga, attacking her lion. At, at this, Dorga became enraged and threw her noose around the demon's neck, dragging him down to the ground. Mahisha immediately shape-shifted, escaping from her, from her hold by turning into a lion, whose head Dorga severed. From the neck of the lion emerged the man with a sword, and Dorga shot through the arrows. He shifted into an elephant and tried to drag down Dorga's lion, so she chopped off his trunk. His trunk. Finally, he resumed his buffalo form, and Dorga promptly decapitated him with the sword. From the buffalo neck, the demon emerged in his true form, and Dorga promptly plunged the trident from her beloved Shiva, slaying him. So the reason that I loved this story was that she shared it the day before I went in for surgery on my face. And I was very, very scared about this surgery. And I had listened to this mantra every night when I went to sleep. I found a YouTube video, which I don't remember which one it is, so it will not be in the show notes, but I would put it on and fall asleep to this idea of a discerning goddess who is powerful, but not sloppy at all in the way that she would use her tools and her gifts. And so it made me just feel like I could do anything. And as I went in, going back to the gold and the scar and the repair, as I sat down for my surgical procedure, I told my surgeon, who was female, a basic rendition of this story. And I said, in all my visualization coming in for this surgery, I've been visualizing you with all of your powerful tools. You have a scalpel to cut. You have wisdom from all of your training. You have experience from doing this procedure over and over again. You have compassion and concern in the way that you have talked to me and educated me. You have compassion knowing that this is my face and I'm scared. Your energy feels supportive and nurturing. And I went through all of the things and she said, is there anything that you would like to play any music? And I said, whatever music is really great for you. You're the one who's doing the work. I'm just sitting here. And she said, no, I'd like to play what's going to make you feel most at ease. So while she went through my surgery, I played the mantra. I took out my phone, iPhone and I found that mantra that I had been listening to going to sleep. And as she did her first incision, that was the mantra that was playing in the background, this goddess energy. And I do not have a gold repair on my lip. She did an amazing job. It's barely visible because she was armed with all of the tools that had been, I'm not, I'll say gifted to her, but not gifted to her as in she didn't have to work for them, but gifted to her in her ability to be in the places where she could acquire her skill, knowledge, and balance out all of that action with 
nurturing and nourishing energy to soothe a patient who was a little scared. So that's my practice. (laughs) The practice was using any of your tools. I was able to take what Susanna had taught me and bring it into my life at a time where I just really needed to embody the the powerful and the soft at the same time. So, so what, pra- you're also, what you're saying too is that we have everything we need. We just need to be aware of which tools we're using when. We have discernment. Like we all have these utility belts. Just because if you're alive, even if you have no formal practice or you've never listened to this podcast and never, got, never been to a yoga class or... We all have things, whether it's walking or writing or what are the things that serve you so that when you're in a moment like that, you can choose to to harness that energy. When you were telling the story and about the lion, you know, in the tarot deck, the one for strength is typically a woman on a lion. Mm, That's typically the depiction of strength. And so strength is male, the lion, you know, I don't know. I mean, it just, we can find conversations about this this topic in absolutely everything. And so that's what made it so daunting to come on. And I also yeah. want to say about Susanna Harwood Rubin that she is that's... the embodied she is the embodiment of divine feminine energy. And you know, I we're very blessed that we got to have her as a guest. And she teaches writing and she teaches embodiment. She teaches yoga and you can find her online. I will put her in the show notes as well, her website, because as teachers go, you'd be lucky to have her voice in your head. And, you know, I, I want to add to that in the gratitude, um, kind of, you said earlier in this, you manifested me. I think I manifested being exposed to her at a time where I really needed her teaching and this deep gratitude for the gifts and the practices, the education that she shared with me and for allowing me to manifest her at the time that I really, really, really needed her teaching and her wisdom. So yes, you would be lucky to have her as one of your teachers as well. So I guess I'll do my practice. I was going to do a mudra and a mantra, but I guess maybe next next episode we'll do the Gayatri mantra because I think that we're going to be continuing the theme of divine feminine, but sort of couching it in a different way, may or not, depending on how the conversation actually evolves. So just for the interest of time and, you know, not overstepping the, the whole practice thing, this is the Abhya, and that's A-B-H-A-Y-A, mudra. And mudra is a hand gesture. It is a hand, sometimes they call it a seal. And this is a really easy one. You're going to sit, you can sit cross-legged if you're a yogi or if you're sitting in a chair. You're going to take your right hand and you're going to bring it chest level. Move my mic out of the way. And your fingers are going to extend up and they're going to be kind of together. And your left hand is going to be cupped on your left knee. And this is the mantra. Cup down. What's that? Cup facing down. Yes. Well, it could be either way. I mean, there are different ways of doing this. There's a Chinese tradition. There's a Japanese tradition. But just for the purposes of today, this is also not my scholarship. So it's not something I can do a dissertation on, (laughs) but I can guide you gently into this, this mantra or this mudra. So the right hand up, fingers extended up, left hand cupping down on your knee. And this is the the mudra. I'm going to read a little bit about it from this book, which actually was recommended by Susanna. It's called Mudra, the Sacred Secret. I'm going to hold it up in case you actually see the, the thing. So this is a gesture of fearlessness, 
and reassurance. That's all I'm going to actually read. Fearlessness and reassurance. And when I read that, I thought, oh, they're balancing the male and feminine energies here. Fearlessness. You know, I mean, we're using it as a divine feminine, but that fearlessness accompanied by an action, an outward action, balances both energies. Reassurance. I'm a mama. Like, that's part of my job is to reassure. What is that divine feminine energy of reassurance? And what is the action that goes with that? And as you sit here, they say, you know, the sadhana, which is just daily practice, to do this every day up to 30 minutes. Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to imagine holding my hand up for 30 minutes. Maybe you can rest the elbow. I don't know. I don't know what the intricacies of that instruction would be. But if you were to sit maybe two to three minutes, let's just say every day, in this gesture of fearlessness and reassurance, just notice what happens. Maybe write about it afterwards, before and after, or just after. There's something, if you didn't know that this mudra was about fearlessness and reassurance, perhaps different energies would write a different story. But we talk a lot about here about the interesting part about context about the story connection to the action, whatever that is. When we're watching America's Great Got Talent or one of those shows, now they're telling the stories of the contestants. One thing to hear a beautiful voice saying, yeah, it feels good, sounds good. But to hear the story of overcoming adversity from the person who's singing, to hear the story of elation and joy from the person who's singing it will give a different experience. So what is the experience of this mudra practiced with regularity when you know that the theme, the story of this mudra is fearlessness and reassurance? In some ways, the theme likens back to Windhorse, which was a practice offered in a previous episode, cultivating courageousness, fearlessness. So in your own discernment, would you find a satna, a daily practice, that includes both this mudra and wind horse. God, be fucking unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you feel done, you can release the hands down and just kind of, I like to, to mindfully shake things out. I was teaching one day and we were doing a balance pose. And after the balance pose, I said, all right, now shake it out, shake it out. And one of my students, this is a, a teaching moment for the teacher. She said, I don't want to shake it out. <laughs> and I said, and I asked why? And she said, I feel like I'm wasting my prana. So in the same way that we have locks that we use, Mula Bandha and Uriyata Bandha and Jaladara Bandha, like these are locks in our bodies that are meant to contain the prana. We breathe in and out through our noses during practice, help to keep the, the prana warm in the body, flowing in the body. There's, there's a purpose to all of this. And so when we in, you know, indiscriminately shake out or indiscriminately do a cleansing breath, I know we do a lot of cleansing breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. When you're practicing, when I would teach, I would say, if you need a cleansing breath, direct your breath somewhere. You know, don't just do it indiscriminately. So this is all about discernment, all about the energies. So if you want to shake it out, shake it out. If you want to regroup by being still, Sometimes the stillness, within that stillness, is the data that we need to mine. So within that moment of stillness, yes, I freaking need to shake it out in order for my body to come back to what Teresa calls this homeostasis, this place of balance. Maybe, oh my gosh, just being still has allowed the energy to settle. 
exactly where it needs to be. So from that stillness, you get your direction. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please click the like and follow buttons and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. These ratings help our grassroots podcast to become more visible to more people so we can include more stories. Written reviews are like stars on steroids. If you are so moved, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We are just getting started. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, please email us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. We'd like to thank our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos.